This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, yesterday it was announced that Joe Biden would be coming to Ireland for five days. It will be after Easter and he will visit the North for a day and then he will be in the Republic of Ireland where he will visit ancestral homes in Mayo, perhaps in Loud. He will not be here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement because, I suspect, because there won't be anything to celebrate in that the Assembly in the North isn't sitting. But he's not going to London on this trip. And we're joined now by Chris Jones, former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland, now a respected commentator. Chris, the visit of Joe Biden when initially proposed would be a celebration of the Good Friday Agreement, which is 25 years old on Good Friday. He won't be here for that date, and I'm not sure if it was pushed back post-Easter because of the dispute between the DUP and everybody else, really. Rishi Sunak appears to have made a big effort on Europe, and of course, King Charles had two state visits organized, one to France, one to Germany. The French one had to be canceled because of the trouble, the political trouble there. But the German one went ahead. It seems like Britain wants to be friends or friendlier with Europe, but they've perished for the moment on the rock of the DUP. Well, of course, the DUP in standing in opposition and indeed voting against this latest deal with with Europe, leaves open the question of when or even if uh, Stormont will be reconstituted. The, the word on the street is that the earliest possible date for that is now May, but nobody is holding their breaths even for that. And amongst all the different people I've spoken to, all the outpourings of analysis of what that might mean, nobody really knows, because the Assembly, of course, is a cornerstone, a key plank of the Good Friday Agreement. And it's not sitting. And so what that means for the status of the Northern Ireland Agreement, nobody seems to be quite sure. Could this continue ad infinitum? Could this continue for the foreseeable future? That seems to be the most likely outcome. 
is that we just have this stasis, this uneasy, uh, and what feels unsustainable position that uh, the Good Friday Agreement still stands, but one key aspect of it does not. And um, that is unsustainable, as I say, but nobody knows what the end game actually is. Yes, I mean, Sunak has, as they say, reached out to the European Union. Ursula von der Leyen came to London for the signing of the Windsor Agreement. And, of course, Sunak welcomed her. He has sort of toned down the anti-Europe rhetoric. He confronted the European Research Group on the question of the Northern Protocol and won. So Sunak has shown a willingness, Chris, to upgrade the relationship with Europe, but he is being thwarted by a small party in the North. Is that a sustainable position? I suppose it's been sustainable in the past. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be the status quo for the foreseeable future. As I say, it, lo it looks and feels and walks and talks like it's unsustainable, but we simply do not know how this particular circle is going to be squared. Sunak's approach is now to Europe is now indistinguishable from the Labour Party's, from Keir Starmer's, yeah. which is quiet rapprochement, managerialism, if you like, uh, yes. to, to get close to, as possible, the, the European Union in all sorts of different ways without actually doing anything resembling rejoining or getting involved in the single market or any of that politically toxic stuff. And so it, it, it's quiet, it's behind the scenes. Its most visible aspect, as you say, is the use of Britain's soft power, which is at the moment King Charles's state visits to Germany and the postponed one to France. It was really quite a big deal, the German one. Yes. Um, the, 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 the state uh, welcome that was given to King Charles at the Brandenburg Gate, I think, was the first one since the Second World War to, for a foreign dignitary. Um, and so th there were lots of fine speeches by the president of Germany uh, who regretted Brexit in his speech. But nevertheless, it was very warm. And it's quite clear that on both sides, there is both these very visible attempts at a rapprochement and behind the scenes, I suspect, again, it's quiet, it's managerial rather than headline. And it's part of Sunak's twin track approach, which is this um, quiet, competent, boring, if you like, approach to Britain's relationship with the rest of the world. There was another big announcement this week that they have joined a Pacific trading arrangement. Uh, it, it's not a big deal from an economic point of view. Uh, it represents less than 1% of British trade, but it got him some positive post-Brexit headlines, and it will have a minor impact on British GDP going forward. It, uh, as always with these things, does have a sting in the tail. Um, the, uh, the farmers are probably uh, left hung out to dry on this one again because it opens up British agriculture to Pacific-based um, imports. It's a trade group that China is seeking to join, so that's an interesting dynamic to that. Um, but the, the twin-track approach of Sunak is to do this quiet managerialism, quiet competence thing that, as I say, is, is virtually indistinguishable from Keir Starmer's approach, including how dull it is, but also to be performative in the way that Boris Johnson was. This is the legacy of Johnson in that the, it, it's now transparent. It had, this strategy of Sunak's is, is very, very transparent. As I say, it, it's the, the quiet competence stuff on the one hand and also throwing red meat to the uh, demographic 
that's going to matter in the next general yes. election. And the present Home Secretary, Suala Braverman, seems to be a particularly nasty politician. She's introduced new proposals now for migrants, people who are arriving in Britain, and where they're going to be housed. So far, they've been housed in hotels, as indeed they have been in Ireland. But now, and one has to admit, hotels are not the ideal place. But now she's proposing, and has proposed this week in Parliament, that they be housed in barges and on military bases, which are no longer required, and put in the most bleak circumstances, which are wholly unsuitable for anybody to to live in. They'll just be there in a place they don't know, away from communities, shops, any sense of daily life. It seems a particularly cruel way to treat people, many of whom, I think four-fifths of those who migrate to Britain and have to do so illegally, would be granted asylum anyway. This is clearly awful stuff. And it is this performative legacy of Johnson that I was referring to earlier on. The peculiarities of the British electoral system mean that the next general election will be decided in, to a considerable extent, not exclusively, but to a considerable extent in those red wall seats that went to Conservatives that gave Johnson and now Sunak his 80-seat majority. And they have to play to that audience. They have to play to the Daily Mail, Daily Express audience that exists in these constituencies, because the peculiarities of the British electoral system mean that an awful lot of Labour's poll lead, such as it is at the moment, 20 plus points, will be wasted because it exists in seats that are safe for Labour. That you know, whether you have a one seat, one one vote majority or a twenty thousand majority in these kinds of places doesn't really matter. And so it's the swing seats that matter. And so they're trying very hard and very transparently to replay the Brexit wars and to replay the issues that they believe, often quite rightly, play very well with this demographic of typically older, white, not terribly educated um, people. And I use those uh, those words carefully. They were contained in a brilliant article in The Guardian this week explaining this strategy, a guy called Raphael Baer. Who, who explained the demographic that these these policies are aimed at. So, the, so they quite rightly believe that their only chance of getting anywhere at the next general election, and we are starting to build towards that, because it will occur sometime over the next 12 or 15 months. We are in a pre-election period now in the UK. They are trying very hard with this twin-track approach of saying, look, um, we, have the, we are now sensible people doing sensible things in places like Europe in terms of these Pacific uh, trade agreements that we are reaching. But they are also um, reaching out to the same people that they won over last time. And they believe that in order to retain at least some of those votes that switched to them last time, they have to play to the issues that they think this red wall demographic will, will warm to. And in that, sadly, aim, I have to say they're probably um, not necessarily on a winning strategy, but it is a strategy that could pay political dividends because the way in which this works, I think, is that they are hoping for a hung parliament, that they retain enough of those votes. They're going to lose seats. They're going to lose their 80-seat majority, absolutely. But they retain enough of the votes that they got last time that they then 
get something like a, a, a hung parliament, as they say, in which case the DUP do come back into the frame, of course, and indeed other mi minor parties. And But that, that's um, de demographic and electoral speculation. But this, it, it, the virtue of for people like me and you who, who like to analyze these things is that the strategy is now abundantly clear. Appeal to yes. the, the, the bit of the electorate that just wants a bit of calm, that wants some of this managerialism, this quiet competence that Sunak is demonstrating, but continuously, wherever they can, throw this red meat to the particular swing voter that they think, quite rightly, I, I believe, is, is so important. And red meat is, unfortunately, this ridiculous stuff about refugees. There's a wonderful clip, if anybody is interested in this sort of thing, of Yvette Cooper standing up in the House of Commons a couple of days ago with um, Robert Jenrick, one of the Home Office ministers, and Suella Braverman in front yeah. of her. And she ripped into them brilliantly. She went through all of the announcements, like the announcement of barges that you mentioned just now, that yes. this lot have made in recent years. Went through them all and said at the end, at the end of each measure that had been announced for the Daily Mail headline, nothing happened. They yes. never are ever able to follow through on any of their promises about reducing numbers, about sending refugees to Rwanda, about putting wave machines in the channel. And she was forecasting that this idea about barges and all the other ideas that they have at the moment will not amount to anything that is merely headline grabbing. It's an electoral strategy to try and demonstrate again to this particular demographic that they are on your side. So, um, and it, it was really interesting because she, she also put up Labour's plans, which are eminently sensible in this regard, which is to say that the UK just needs to become like any other country for for the, the question of refugees and that we have to take our fair share. Obviously, we can't take everybody and that we need a system that deals with these refugees humanely and appropriately, keep the ones that deserve to stay, send the ones back that don't. And it is a plan. And Jenrick's only response was, after hearing this detailed ripping to shreds of everything the Tories have done on refugees and an exposition again of Labour's plans in this regard, stood up and said, well, it's quite clear that Labour doesn't have a plan. So these people do not have a response. They do not have anything resembling a coherent policy. They don't have a set of measures that are capable of being implemented. And the barges idea is just a, another one in a long line of headline grabbing performative policies that will ultimately amount to nothing. But you're right. It is cruel. It is ridiculous. And it makes and it diminishes Britain on the world stage. Yes. And just uh, on the question of the DUP holding the balance of power at Westminster, Theresa May had to live with that. Am I mistaken in believing that Boris Johnson also had to live with it for a while? Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, you're there, Chris. Does anybody in Britain outside of the political realm know what the Northern Ireland issue is? And do they care? No, historically, Ireland has never featured uh, front and centre of, of British politics um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, it's nothing personal, Eamon. Most people in this country don't think about politics at all, and they certainly don't think about foreign policy, which in a way this is, yeah. because it's about not just relationships within the UK, but it's the relationship with Ireland, it's the relationship with the EU. It's also the relationship with the United States, as you rightly say, in terms of the significance of Joe Biden and his, his visit to, to, or to Ireland. Um, no, uh, Northern Ireland is, is not something that ever, uh, certainly during 
the post-Troubles period. During the Troubles, of course, all of the headlines were about the um, the violence that took place back then. That was when the only time that Northern Ireland ever really does feature on the front pages. Uh, I can assure you that um, you could probably count on the fingers of two hands the number of people that understand the intricacies of the Northern Ireland Protocol process, the way where it's come from, where it's at, and where it's likely to go. And you ask the question, does anybody care? I mean, brutally and honestly, Eamon, people in this country do not. And it is not something that people think about or care about. Yeah, there's an imbalance in this because loyalists and unionists in the north of Ireland care passionately and deeply about being part of the United Kingdom, being British, being part of the Union. I mean, they really do. They march for it. And it's the key to their identity. It's a very strange relationship. This is not a judgment. It's just an observation that the people who vote for the DUP, who vote for unionist parties, and the loyalist people of the north of Ireland care deeply about their ties to Britain. And it's not in any way reciprocated, is it? No. Uh, you, you'll find discussion of these things in esoteric, not slightly esoteric, political periodicals. Like There's one called Prospect, you may have heard of. Yes. And they had a recent article in which they looked at the issue of the protocol, and in particular, how people in Northern Ireland feel about this. So this is a British political periodical read by a very small number of readers just asking the question, what do people in Northern Ireland think about the protocol? And they cited polling done in Northern Ireland. And they pointed out that A, a majority of people in the North support the protocol in, and that um, it, it's one of those interesting things that if you, if you are a Democrat, you would say, well, if the majority of people in Northern Ireland support the protocol, then what's the problem? And of course, that a deep dive, deeper dive into the polling reveals what the problem is, is that the, the harder line unionist you are with your attitudes when people are asked about these sorts of things, the more likely it is that you are opposed to the protocol. So yeah. the DUP's own base is typically against the protocol. And the harder line on unionist issues that the DUP's base take, that's more that pushes them more to, into the anti, vehemently anti-protocol stance. And so the DUP is playing to A, its own audience, and B, within unionism, of course, the DUP isn't the only game in town. There are harder line unionist yes. parties uh, up there as well that the, the uh, DUP is very concerned about losing votes to. So it is it is the dynamic within the North that I think is the most important. Um, most people in Britain um, wouldn't know what the protocol is, let alone whether or not they have an attitude towards it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, now let's move on slightly and I say slightly because we're moving to a story that broke yesterday about the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his resignation honours list. And on that resignation honours list, he's put his father, who he wants to give a knighthood to. His father is a known domestic abuser, abuser of Boris Johnson's mother, in fact, broke her nose and there were other instances of that. He also wants to send to the Lords Paul Dacre, who's a very famous British journalist. He was editor of the Daily Mail and has been throughout its, one has to say, burgeoning success as a populist newspaper in Britain. It's now He's now the executive editor or something. But Boris wanted to send him to the Lords, but they blocked it. What's going on there? It's two months now, I think, or more, in fact, since Johnson resigned. But he can't even do the resignation honours list without, should we say, controversy. Yeah, this man does not care about any rules. We know all that from the uh, furore over parties in Downing Street and 101 other issues um, in Johnson's long political life. Uh, and indeed before then, at his time at Eton and his time at Oxford, he clearly believes that the rules do not apply to him and the codes of normal behaviour do not apply to him. As always with the British and their unwritten constitution, it's murky uh, when trying to figure out what the rules are for these honours lists. Tradition has it that when a prime minister leaves office, he or she can nominate 
all sorts of the great and the good for various honours, not just peerages and knighthoods, but the various gongs, medals, yes. and other things that are, are dished out to people. And it, it has a long history of controversy uh, going back a long way. You can go all the way back well, to the two centuries ago, but I, uh, people normally start this conversation by talking about a British prime minister from the First World War, the guy called David Lloyd George, and his mm-hmm. resignation honours list. And he wasn't he he was he was a chip off the Johnsonian block actually in terms of his 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 attitude to to rules and codes of behaviour and so it has gone on to a greater or lesser extent throughout modern and, and not so modern history uh, in terms of controversies over um, giving gongs to people that deserve it or giving gongs to people that don't. Harold Wilson, a name that some of your listeners might remember as a British Prime Minister from the sixties <laughs> and early seventies, his resignation honours list. Uh, gave a few uh, bells and whistles out to some of his mates, who uh, one of whom actually ended up going to jail um, yes. for offences that emerged afterwards. So it's, Johnson isn't the first person to do this, but I think he's probably the person to do this in the most egregious way possible, which is very Johnsonian, let's face it. Yes. There are no rules codified or laws, but there are codes of behaviour. You're not supposed to, under the existing rules as I understand them, to give out these sorts of things to your relatives. That does seem to be a, a fundamental stumbling block for, for, for Sunak, because Sunak has to approve this. And ultimately, the thing that really is the problem here for the British is that these awards are recommended to the king. So um, Buckingham Palace has to give these things out. So if, if Johnson's father is knighted, it'll have to be the king that does it. And I yeah. think one of the many aspects to this, apart from its naked corruption, if you like, of a sort. It's the fact that, you know, Johnson Sr. will be knighted by King Charles. And that, frankly, is an embarrassment, I would have thought, too far for the palace. They don't have a veto over this. They have to do what Sunak tells him. But it is a problem for Sunak. And it's one that I'll bet he wish he doesn't have. But that's why it's being held up. And Dacre is a nakedly political thing. Well, Dacre and the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail is very powerful weapon in Fleet Street and across the country. I don't think that Rishi Sunak will want to block Paul Dacre's nomination to the Lords. And the reason it is being blocked is not clear to me. Perhaps you can clarify that for us. He's a powerful gent and he has been a very successful editor of the Daily Mail. Yeah, and the Daily Mail is a, is a, an aspect of British life. Uh, one of the ways in which um, it, it actually crossed the water over to you this week is that um, Elton John was appearing in, in Dublin this week, and he was talking about his many appearances in Ireland and how he always finds Ireland a very kind place um, in terms of the audience, in terms of its people. And he talked yeah. about the way in which his home country, Great Britain, um, aspects of which are not so kind these days. And the example he gave on stage of how Britain has become a very unkind place is the behavior of the Daily Mail. He cited yeah, I have the to Daily declare an, an interest here. I worked for the Daily Mail for a while, so I just want to put that on the record. When I say anything about Paul Dacre, for example, or anyone else in the Daily Mail, it is, I hope, made very clear that I worked for them. I took the shilling as we say in these parts. The fact of the matter, though, is, is it not, Chris, that it is a very powerful force, as is the son, Tony Blair, 
his first trip was to a Murdoch event, wasn't it? When he was, you know, planning to become what he became, which wasn't something particularly nice. But you, you, you have to acknowledge the power of these gents. They are very powerful. Um, I think their power is much diminished. If you look at the circulation of these newspapers, they're a fraction yes. of what they were in the past when you took the shilling from the Daily Mail. Yeah. Um, the Daily Mail's power is, is more its online uh, presence than its yes. actual old-fashioned newspaper presence. So it still has some power. And the belief amongst the, the political anoraks that look at these things about how much influence they have and where their power is exercised goes back to that comment I was making about the peculiar nature of the British electoral system is that they have very, very strong influence over votes in these key marginal constituencies. Yes. So the way in which the British political system is now skewed is that it's these marginal constituencies where extreme views matter that determine the kind of government we get. The people like me, who describe ourselves as um, flabby centrists, uh, really don't matter in the British electoral system anymore. It's, it's, it, it's, it's been hijacked, yes. partly because of its first-past-the-post nature. We don't have proportional representation. We emphatically should if we are to get a representative democracy, a, a democracy that means that people who vote from the centre, who are in the vast majority in this country, get a voice. They no longer have a voice because of things like the Daily Mail and its influence over extreme uh, voters um, in these very marginal but key constituencies that determine which way the government actually goes. So we have this system whereby those of us who are in the majority observe these developments in the press, in the media, and these key marginal seats and wonder which way is it going to go next time. Unfortunately, that's the Britain that we're living in today, that it's yes. whether or not you um, are, you're only, you only have a voice really if you live in a key marginal constituency. And, and that, that's, the, that's the, the, the attack or that's the um, target of these newspapers seeking to influence. And, and thankfully, their influence is diminishing but it is still very much there. Okay, Chris, we're very grateful to you for joining us today. As always, Chris Jones has his own podcast called The Other Hand, and it's doing very, very well. Jim Power, who is a very welcome and valued contributor to this program, and other economists shares that podcast with Chris. We're grateful to Chris, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.